We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want NFL Network Insider Ian Rappaport reporting this morning that the Buffalo Bills are releasing six-time Pro Bowl running back LaShawn McCoy. The 31-year-old runner has spent the last four seasons in Buffalo. 2018 was the only one of those seasons in which he didn't have over 1,000 yards from scrimmage. He's been featured in the last five Pro Bowls, gone to six overall. The Bills had a bit of a crowded situation in the backfield, bringing in Frank Gore in the offseason, and the release does come as a bit of a surprise considering what GM Brandon Bean said earlier this summer about McCoy. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Patrick Claybond, NFL Network, talking about rap sheet reporting. LaShawn McCoy on the outs here in Buffalo, folks. Shocker. Guys, it's that time of year again. Chris, it wasn't easy, but we made it to the other side in one piece. The official start of the NFL season. Cheers, sir. And I'm sure you spent the weekend comparing our final 53 to your 53 projection from before training camp and then your 53 projection after our fourth game against Minnesota. Tonight is, in fact, a celebration. It is absolutely a party because this is it. This is it. We're on the other side. Real football. It's here. I genuinely didn't know if I'd make it. The last few weeks were tough. And I want to apologize because I know some of our listeners, you know, we're, we're... we, we see your feedback. We know what you guys are thinking. And, and to be honest, if I can be honest, I hated a lot of the preseason process. And I'm sure that came through in the final product, but it's here. Okay, The weeks were tough, and listening to all this bluster coming from everywhere, just about all of the off-season process, it started to feel, at least for me, like 
Chris, the only thing I could compare it to was trying to listen to Fran Drescher and Gilbert, Gilbert Gottfried doing slam poetry. That's it. That's the only thing I could compare it to in terms of insufferability. Fran Drescher is annoying, but I don't, I don't really find uh, Gilbert Gottfried's voice that annoying. How? Do you have ears? I I've, see I've seen him perform stand-up. He's all right at that. You know, I've just become <laughs> numb to him with his Geico commercials and his stand-up and seeing him on Netflix. Well, I've just become numb to it. And I think that that's how I, I turned the corner down here. But, Chris, we're out the other side. None of this matters anymore. Cheers yes. to the start of football. And beer watch. I'm already, uh, I've already had two beers in pre-pro. No, You're just, you. you just opened your first. Absolutely, because this is an occasion, you know? You gotta, you, I gotta save it for something that matters. And this is it. We made it. The 2019 football season is here. Now, before we get started, a little promo. If you guys are here in the Buffalo area, we would ask that you consider joining us at Batavia Downs 34 Rush this weekend as the Bills take on the Jets. We're going to be there with the guys from Rock Sports Network. There's going to be food and drink specials over at 34 Rush starting at 11 o'clock tailgating games. You're going to get to see the new addition to the bar that they just put on. We're going to be there providing uh, pregame coverage, halftime, postgame, and interviewing Thurman Thomas himself, which is going to be a great time. Now, an interesting little tweak I'd like to throw in there for you guys. We will ask a question from one of our listeners and give you a shout out during the broadcast. Okay? Tweet and email us with one question you'd like to hear Thurman Thomas answer. And we'll pick our favorite and not only ask it, but also give you a shout out during the, d- during the broadcast. And if you can't come join us in person, you can follow the live stream over at rocksportsnetwork uh, on Facebook. I mean, it's, it's going to be a great time. If you want to come have a few beers with the old boy, Drew Gear and Chris Kruger, I strongly suggest you do it. Yeah, come on out. Also, YouTube, Saturday, 7 o'clock, will be live. First video of the season. So make sure you check that out. Oh, it's, it's going to be something, folks. But here it is, okay? It's going to be a great time, and I've been looking forward to tonight's podcast for almost a month. Finally having real, tangible football topics to dissect and discuss. So, Chris, let's just jump right into it with this week's Bills News Update. Around the league... NFL teams are trimming their rosters. This past Saturday, they had until 4 o'clock to announce their roster cuts. And I know that that sounds like a hard deadline, but the situation's always kind of fluid. You know, Chris, in in the days following the cutdown, there's always a lot of shuffling that's going on. Teams are trying to patch whatever holes they have left. They're taking a look at who's out there on the roster. GMs are manipulating things like putting a guy on the active roster and then putting him on IR so that he can come back with kind of a wink and a nudge agreement with some veteran who's not exposed to waivers. It's just, there's a lot of gamesmanship happening and a lot of shuffling going on this time of year. Now, there's always going to be a few things that make you stop and stare for one reason or another, and there were a few right here in the AFC East that I think are noteworthy. I mean, if you go team by team, first of all, the Miami Dolphins. There was a veteran purge when you look at the trades of Laramie Tunsil, Kiko Alonso, and Kenny Stills. I mean, Chris, this isn't just a youth movement. The Dolphins are a used car lot right now, and there is a full-on fire sale. Come on, sweetie. No, don't be a bitch. Let's talk some numbers here. I mean, Chris, they're wheeling and dealing all over the place. I mean, think about it. Kiko Alonso, straight-up salary cap dump. They trade Kiko Alonso to the Saints for a single linebacker, not even draft capital. 
<laughs> they get some guy named Vince. I think his last name's Beagle. Whoever the hell that is. And they shed about six and a half million in cap space. Which isn't surprising when you consider that last week when we had Locked On Dolphins host Travis Wingfield on, he kind of outlined for us that the Finns linebacker core has a lot of cheap, recently drafted talent that pretty much made Kiko expendable. But to not even get a pick back in return for that seems... Chris, <laughs> you didn't, you couldn't get any return for that guy? I mean, I know he wears children's-sized shirts, but come on. He's got to be worth something. Yeah, I mean, we got a... Um... We traded Bodine and got a draft pick. We traded Teller and got a draft pick. I can't believe uh, Miami couldn't wrestle away a draft pick from uh, New Orleans and just straight up linebacker for linebacker. Yeah, I don't, I don't outrightly understand what. Uh, <laughs> I just, I don't get it. You know, and it's especially confusing when I take a look around and I. Then you see the other moves they made. You see them ship off this piece and you say, okay, they have the pieces in place to make that guy expendable. Then you get rid of your most veteran skill position player. You just threw away. Chris, imagine the shock on my face when you watch a division opponent get rid of the only consistent piece to what is one of the worst offensive lines on paper in the NFL in exchange for some draft picks that, well, they're nice. They're not going to help keep either one of your starting quarterbacks in 2019 off their backs. It, it blows my mind. It's like they're going to be like uh, Arizona's offensive line from last season. I don't. I don't know. Cheap and useless. <laughs> I mean, there was. I think the funniest thing about all this is you think about Brian Flores' reaction when he was accused of like tanking. When people came out during a press conference and just asked the question, "Are you tanking?" And his response was you know, to... I'm not going to disrespect the game like that. Yeah, he's talking about disrespecting the game. When in reality, when you look at what they've done this offseason, it's literally the equivalent of, of Michael Scott walking out of the break room in the office and just yelling bankruptcy. <laughs> Declaring bankruptcy. That's what the Dolphins just did by getting rid of all the veteran players that they did over the last five days. Then you take a, take a look at the New York Jets. They cut third-round draft pick Ja'Kai Polite with no practice squad designation. Now, Bills fans are familiar with this concept that new GMs aren't usually fans of a previous regime's players. For good reason, though. I mean, usually, Chris, if you're a new GM taking over a franchise, the players who were there when you showed up probably, I mean, they obviously weren't good enough to help the other guy keep his job. So what are the odds you want those guys around? Now, the thing that makes this weird is that this guy was just drafted a few months ago in the third round and was cut by the new regime over the weekend despite playing a position that the Jets aren't overwhelmingly deep at, rush linebacker. Not only, to me, is it a glaring indictment of the previous GM, but also of the player who, if you read the reports coming out of New York City, failed not only failed to produce in the preseason, but was lazy. Just lazy in his practices, racked up almost $1,000 and $100,000 in fines due to weight issues, showing up late to meetings. I mean, it's... Chris, at this point, don't you assume that if you're in the NFL at this level to where people are drafting you before the fourth round, you should probably have a handle on how to be a professional? Yeah, you should uh, definitely have that. I mean, it goes to show that uh, Gase and McCagnan... 
did not get along. Well, I guess it's the other side. Well, well, but that's that the other cut. side to it. I mean, it's not only shame on the player, but shame on McCagnan. You had months to vet this kid. And in the run-up to the draft, try to figure out if he's a guy who belonged on your board or not. And the new GM comes in and says, no, this kid's lazy. <laughs> this kid's lazy, and he's not a professional. I don't want him near my team. I mean, McCagnan had a lot of whiffs in the draft. Most, I think most notably Christian Hackenberg in the second round. That might be the most glaring. But his inability to predict that type of behavior, th- that might be the crown jewel in his trophy case of draft ineptitude and another glaring indictment of his ability to be a GM in the NFL. Yeah, Polite was taken 68th overall. We took Singletary 74th overall, and he did so well in the preseason, he made McCoy expendable. And I think that's why McCoy is not here. It's it, The whole thing is just seems crazy to me. And then when you look at what's going on in New England, starting center and their first-round draft pick have been placed on the IR. Now, for the second time in two years, the Patriots have had to send a player drafted in the first round to the injured reserve, with wide receiver Nikhil Harry sent there with an ankle injury that's going to keep him out until at least the middle of 2019. Last year, the Patriots lost their first-round, I guess, offensive tackle of the future, Isaiah Wynn, before the regular season even got underway. That just ended his season. He tore his Achilles. So this should be familiar territory for the Patriots, but it's a concern for them because when you look at their wide receiver depth chart, I think they were kind of banking on having some kind of size option around. I mean, what, what do they have? They have the ghost of Demarius Thomas. They've got Julian Edelman and a whole bunch of guys I've never heard of before, none of whom have really any kind of physical mismatch. So with that, I mean, I I think that that's a... Their wide receiver death chart is underwhelming, even if you consider the addition of Josh Gordon. And then, in what I think is a bigger move, they had to place their starting offensive center, David Andrews, on the IR. The guy had blood clots in his lungs. That's crazy. Yeah, I wonder if that would maybe eventually force him to retire or he can come back. I don't even know how old is he. You know? I don't know, but I know that he's been their starter for the last four seasons. I think he's played their last 54 games. I mean, the team is clearly worried, underscored by the fact that they gave Buffalo draft capital in exchange for Russ Bodine. Let me repeat that for those of you in the cheap seats. The Patriots gave up a draft pick for Russ Bodine. Now, I know you're probably laughing hysterically at the concept of that, I mean, the last time we saw him, he was snapping a ball over the quarterback's head. So (laughs) the fact that he's wearing a Patriots jersey, I get it. They have one of the best offensive line coaches of all time. But when you consider the other trades the Patriots have made over the course of the last week to kind of build some kind of depth on the interior of their offensive line, you have to assume that there's significant concern in Foxborough about the depth to their interior offensive line and their wide receiver core. And Chris, whenever there's concern in Foxborough, a Bills fan gets their chicken wings. And with that, you got to look at the Buffalo Bills. You know, as we're running down the AFC East and we're talking about everybody else churning their rosters, the Bills 53-man roster is set. Saturday morning, the team got to work paring down the roster. And with it, there's, Chris, there's some interesting things, some surprising things. A couple things that make you rotate your head around like an owl and wonder who the, who the hell's making these decisions. 
I'm not going to try to unpack every single position group on the roster because, honestly, that doesn't do a whole lot for me. I don't know about you. But there are some things here that I think we have to talk about. Starting with the practice squad. Christian Wade. Chris, you might as well go to the fridge now. Fetch me my beverage, sir. Yes, I understand that I scoffed all offseason at the calls for him to make the 53-man roster because there was a lot of you out there who wanted to see this. But ultimately, the kid has a lot of work to do. And the fact that he's on the practice squad underscores the fact that the team agrees with me. Okay? He, he does indeed need work. He needs to get more acclimated to the way NFL football gets played. He needs a lot of things. But Chris, we did see flashes of that athleticism that, it, that is required to be a player at this level, right? Yeah, I mean, his first two touches with the ball were for significant yardage. But you, if you watch like the fourth preseason game and a couple other plays that he had, you know, he had a hard time taking the, taking the ball from the quarterback, hard time blocking. Uh, what, on his two long runs, I'm going to run away from everyone instead of following my blocks and get in the end zone. Because he could have had two touchdowns in the preseason. He's got a lot to learn. He does. And so, <laughs> but to, to underscore my own ignorance coming into this season, I was the one who made a Seagram's bet with our friend from across the sea that he would not be included in this year's roster at all in any way, shape, or form. I was convinced of it. And this was obviously before I knew about the exemption. But I'm not going to hide behind technicalities. <laughs> I'm just not. So, Chris... You know what that means. I owe somebody a bottle of, what is this, orange and pineapple flavored shame. With that, I'm going to tip back my Bahama Mama. Cheers to you, Paul. Oh, Oh, to Christian Wade. It's so sweet. Oh, my God. Chris, talk about Duke Williams for a second. I can't believe he uh, didn't. Make the roster because that's why I have to drink this thing. <laughs> Wild berries. Can't wait. Uh, we had, Drew and I had bets that uh, the last receiver spot would go down to, I thought Duke Williams, you thought Ray Ray McLeod. Ray Ray <laughs> McLeod is in Carolina. Duke is on the practice squad. I was a little uh, bit more right than you. And then that last spot goes to Isaiah McKenzie, which I don't get because I think you could. I think with Isaiah McKenzie, you could you could also get what he offers from John Brown. John Brown can run those plays. He's fast. Well, either way, Chris, the practice squad this year brought us nothing but tropical-flavored shame and disappointment. Cheers to you, sir. We make terrible bets, and now we're paying for it. But no, when it comes to Duke Williams on the practice squad, I think that's encouraging. I mean, Brandon Bean said a lot of things in the post-game press conference, post-game, his uh, post, I guess, roster cutdown press conference that alluded to the fact that they were really, really concerned some other team was going to swoop in and take Duke, and they were really relieved to get him signed to the practice squad. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to stay there because any team could come sniffing along, uh, sniffing along for him. But when you look at what he did in the preseason, there's obviously something there to work with, Chris. I mean, the touchdowns that he scored are the types of touchdowns that you want a big possession receiver like him to be scoring. You know, he has the one where he just basketball catches it over the guy's head and walks it into the end zone. There's not a lot of receivers, even against second stringers, that can do that. So there's clearly a base there to work with. And now the team has some time to brush up 
the finer points of his game. And I think one of the things out there for people who are really disappointed by his, his cut from the final 53, look at Robert Foster. This is a staff that took a kid, big, fast, doesn't play as physical as you'd like for him to play with his size, put him on the practice squad, and as the season went on and they saw him improving, gave him a shot in the middle of the season, and it allowed him to become a playmaker in this offense. I was going to say, first injury we have to the wide receiving core, Duke Williams is going to get called up, and he won't get released the rest of the season. Well, I mean, it's it's definitely a feather in their cap to know that they have a guy down there that they obviously like, and they're going to get some time to work with him away from having to do the day-to-day game planning type stuff. He's going to get some extra work down there. He's going to get reps in. And over time, I think you are going to see, maybe towards the end of the season even, depending on how things go, a push for him to maybe get some play. But either way, the practice squad, I, I'm, I'm okay with those two things. They stood out to me as big. On defense, okay, we knew coming into this season that the bones of a great defense were already in place. Last season, when you looked at as injuries started to rack up and surprise retirements and just things like that started to take their toll, the depth was ob- the lack of depth was obvious. It was a problem. So it is nice to look over the, lo- the roster this year and not see any glaring deficiencies when you look at the numbers and the overall quality of the players that we have on hand. Now, when I take a look at this, the first thing I see is that the pterodactyl is going to be flying around New Era Field on Sundays. <laughs> Chris, I'm incredibly happy about this. How many like late round picks is is this for like Bean? Because you said Milano was a throwaway pick, made the team fifth round pick. Uh, what Levi Wallace? He was undrafted. What what round did we get Teron Johnson in? We got Teron Johnson in the fourth round. Okay, and then now the pterodactyl like. It's nice to see that we're kind of hitting on these late-round picks, and I, I think he has a shot, you know, to uh, to do something on that defensive line when he gets the chance because he's got those giant eagle wings. Well, I, I think you're getting a little carried away, but ultimately here's what I like. When we talked about him after they drafted him, we reiterated the fact that they love, between Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott, they love to acquire players with physical traits that you can't teach. You know, Josh Allen's arm, Edmonds' ridiculous frame and athleticism. They take guys like that because they're confident that they can mold them into something. So it's not a stretch that they would take a guy like him, but what surprised me is how he, I would say far and away, outplayed guys like with experience like Eddie Yarbrough and Mike Love. If you want to talk about against starters and against second stringers, who you noticed most often out of those three players, you'd, you'd be foolish not to say that he wasn't the more effective of the three. And so with that, you know, you take a look, Mike Love's injury obviously opened the door to it, and the fact that Eddie Yarbrough still had practice squad you know, time left, the fact that he hadn't started enough games to be exempt from the practice squad, I mean, I think that they looked at his traits and said he would be best served learning as part of a rotation at defensive end. And I think if you were to look at it, Chris, Eddie Yarbrough over the years has been kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. He's a guy, but when he's out there on the field, you don't notice him. I think they like gambling on the upside of a guy like, you know, like um, Daryl Johnson, who... With that, the long arms, that's the thing that I noticed, was his athleticism, but his ability to use his hands 
It's almost like in boxing. When you have a reach advantage on a guy, it makes it really hard for them to get into your body. And that's you watched him do it when he did pressure the quarterback, was he was able to keep their, their hands off of him and hand fight his way into creating pressure. I mean, obviously, I don't expect him to do it every snap as a seventh-round pick. He's not going to be consistent on, on game days, you know, every Sunday. I'd like to see him, uh, like, just bull rush the tackle and while he's doing that, poke one of the guards in the eye for, like, somebody to come in the middle. Because his, <laughs> his arm span is just that big. It's like nine feet. It's hilarious to me that you're promoting the poking of eyeballs here on a football podcast. <laughs> Either way, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch him acclimate to the pro game. And it is comforting knowing that you do have a guy like Eddie Yarbrough on the practice squad. So in the event things do go south and it turns out he's, he can't hack it, you can swap the two of them out. Yeah, Eddie Yarbrough, he's got game experience. And that's, I guess, game experience. That's the next group of players I want to talk about when you look at the linebackers. It was disappointing for me to see Voshan Joseph placed in the IR because I did want to see what the kid had. I mean, he wasn't a highly touted linebacker coming out of college. He had struggles and he's a little undersized. But people said the same thing about Matt Milano. And this staff has done a good job of coaching him up. So I was interested to see what they could do with him. But I still feel comfortable when I look at what's cooking here. Especially when you consider, Chris, when Milano broke his leg. Oh, yeah, that was in our end zone. That was gruesome to look at. When it happened, you watched the performance of that unit deteriorate pretty dramatically. They just didn't have the same athletic chops. They had a lot of young guys who we didn't even know. know, Corey Thompson was starting games for us, and nobody even knew who he was. So this year, going into 2019, behind our starters, the team's going to have NFL veteran talent in the form of Julian Stanford and Mo Alexander, who's really interesting to me because, his first of all, his background is a safety. I'm thinking of players like Mark Barron. Mark Barron was a safety that got drafted really high in the draft and struggled to play the safety position. He moved to linebacker where, because he was a bigger safety to begin with, he moved to linebacker, and that saved his career. It kept him in the NFL. So with that, and you look at a guy like Mo Alexander, who's already a special teams ace, you're going to have talented veteran guys backing up our starters who have some interesting athletic chops to them. Adding Corey Thompson, like I said, guy who randomly started, when you and I were both saying, okay, this team prefers veteran experience. So the first guy up to bat when Matt Milano went down, we were thinking it was going to be a Deion Lacey. You figure it's probably going to be a, uh, what, a Julian Stanford? Some kid out of LSU who's never played a snap of NFL football before. But now he's here, okay? The team has ensured that there is significant depth so that one singular injury isn't going to derail the production of the entire unit. You have to feel better about that, right? Yeah. Safeties. This is the other thing I see on defense. Safeties everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. The Bills went into the 2018 season with four safeties on the roster. They ended with the same. With rookie Saran Neal playing maybe, I think he, he, I don't think he ever got a start. He played just a small percentage of snaps. So really only three players. Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer, and Raphael Bush saw any kind of significant action for this team. This season, the team is looking to double that figure. There are currently six safeties on the Bills roster. 
if you count the re-edition of uh, veteran safety Kirk Coleman, that ties them with the Chargers, Detroit, Oakland, for the most in the NFL, and only one of our safeties is a rookie. Jaquan Johnson, who balled out a little bit in preseason. I mean, this group is deeper than the Marianas Trench at this point. Not just with two high-end starters, but also reliable NFL experience on the back end and a lot of depth, not just in terms of the overall skill level, but there's a variety of different skill sets. Each one of these guys is like a Swiss Army knife. You can use them in different ways. You know, you have Saran Neal's versatility. You have Kurt Coleman, who can play inside the box very well, almost like a smaller linebacker. You, you just, Johnson, Johnson showed, he, what, Johnson had two or three pass breakups in the uh, in the preseason. Yeah. The kid. So in the event you needed someone to play deep safety, he's shown a little bit of acclimation to that. Overall, I think it's telling about what kind of defense they want to play. But I think the big things came on offense, Chris, and you heard it in the intro. There's only one place to start with that, and that's LaShawn McCoy, the shocker of cutdown day. Last week, we kind of, last week we talked about every running back, you know, when we were kind of reviewing the Detroit game. We talked about how every running back showed their specific skill set and did it well as we just kind of rolled over Detroit when we were running the football. And that we were going to be in very good positional shape going forward. Apparently, some of those players did so well, the team felt like they had to make a drastic change. So in releasing LaShawn McCoy, the team saves itself more than $6 million that they can either spend this year or roll into 2020. And if that's the course they go, the team's going to enter the season with almost $93 million in cap space. Which is, I think, impressive considering how much they spent this offseason. Yeah, I can't wait to figure all that out at the end of the season with uh, Wineski, who usually comes on our show for salary cap stuff, because I'm definitely not going to trust you talking numbers to me. Now, Chris, what was your reaction, knee-jerk reaction, when you found out the news? I was a little shocked, but then I guess Singletary played well enough to where you could uh, get rid of Shady. And what, it's, he was a $6 million cap hit, and it's a $2 million dead cap thereabouts, so you're saving $4 million. And plus, if you need a pass catcher out of the backfield, you got T.J. Yeldon, your boy from Alabama. No, he, they really do have a vast variety of skill sets still. I mean, when you look at it from an X's and O's standpoint, McCoy's running style was dynamic, and he was also a threat in the passing attack right up until 2018. Now, you can blame some of his performance on the offensive line. That's Chris, no one's going to stand here and tell you that he is entirely to blame for the fact that his performance sucked. Last year with no offensive line. I think one of the statistics when we were going over the offensive side of the ball heading into training camp with Joe Marino, I think one of the stats that I cherry-picked was that LaShawn McCoy's yardage before contact was 1.9 yards, which was the lowest he'd ever had in his entire career. So that means there's people touching him in one yard. If you're an improvisational back, you're not going to be able to manufacture much on your own when there's people all over you the second you get the ball in your hands. It's just not going to work. So I guess when you look at this, though, it's not like they... This isn't the Miami situation where we're just dumping salary. The team gave him an opportunity to outplay the rest of the running backs on this roster throughout the preseason. The fact that they feel comfortable enough with this... Chris... 
Is this the team being, I can't decide, is this the team being cheap or is it that they think Singletary and Gore and Yeldon, their, com- their combined performances can make up for the loss of this guy? I think it's going to be Singletary and make up for getting rid of McCoy. I mean, I think it was, I think it was in the first or second preseason game, you saw there was a tweet from Eric Turner over at Cover One that there was one running play which, I guess, according to Eric, embodied everything that you want in a running back with his center of gravity, being able to, to find the right hole to, to go through and squeeze out eight yards on a run. I think Singletary made McCoy expendable. I mean, I, I'm i torn because there is the part of me that understands that football is a business. No, no, you're torn because you hated Singletary and you want <laughs> to still hate him. No, you're, so not gonna, you're not going to get on that train of, uh, like, when he gets like a thousand yard season, you'll you'll finally be like, all right, Chris. I may I, I may get be, it. I may be, you like to die on hills is what yeah, you like to do. But I'm also but when provided with evidence to the contrary, I'm also Chris. I know I'm already halfway down the highway to diabetes because of all the Seagram's bets I've lost over the years. But if someone presents me with tangible evidence that my original opinion was wrong, I'm more than happy to admit it. With this, I just feel like there's something here. When you're talking about you're getting rid of a proven offensive weapon, and I think last week as we closed the show, I talked about the lack of high-end offensive talent. Did you have to get rid of McCoy? Because he represents the only high-end proven commodity at any point in time during his NFL career. and tr- The only guy who's proven he can produce anything at a consistent level. And you just shipped him off for an extra $6 million in cap space. Never even asked him to take a pay cut. I think if I have a problem with it, it's right there. You didn't even try to keep him around. You wanted him gone. And maybe it's because, as a GM, you have so much faith in your own picks. But, man, that's... Chris, do you know the balls that it takes? I'm picturing him walking... Brandon Bean is walking down the sidewalk like Randy Marsh's father, carrying his balls in a wheelbarrow. Wheelbarrow. That's what it takes to cut a running back who's accumulated over 10,000 rushing yards in his career for what? For a gang of running backs who have, albeit good all-around skill sets, but none of them has ever accomplished what LaShawn McCoy has. Not in a single season, not in their careers. I just think that this is a mistake, but when you look at what's left behind, because it's all over but the crying at this point, so... When you look at what's left behind, I think to myself, what were we at running back in 2018? I'll tell you what. We were shallow, and it was bad. (laughs) Think think about this. You're going from a group that was LaShawn McCoy, Marcus Murphy, Keith Ford, and Chris Ivory. And when LaShawn McCoy went down with injury or when he just wasn't effective and wasn't given playing time, who produced who am I, would you trade last year's depth chart for this year's, even without LaShawn McCoy? Well, I think a lot of that goes into what goes into that is the play of our offensive line. And especially with. But the play of our offensive line wouldn't save the fact that Keith Ford was slow. Marcus Murphy is actually allergic to pass protection, he's allergic to it, breaks out in a rash. LaShawn McCoy, apparently they view him as old. And Chris Ivory, I don't even know if he's on a roster right now. I don't think he's on a roster. (laughs) Which speaks to the turnaround even at that position, Chris. The fact that each one of these guys, Frank Gore, 
Devin Singletary, TJ Yeldon. Even if TJ Yeldon was your only option, I think he still exists on his own as a more viable running back than anyone outside of LaShawn McCoy from last year's roster. So while I'm not happy with McCoy's exit from the roster, I still feel comfortable about the depth that we've cultivated in the offseason. But I'd be remiss if we didn't send McCoy out in style. Grab a beer, Chris. I want to take this opportunity to pour one out for LaShawn McCoy. Shady McCoy, first of his name, breaker of ankles, ender of droughts, and spoiler of Marvel films. You were the best, one of the best running backs, I'd say, to ever put your name on our jersey, and you will not soon be forgotten. Chris, I got to admit, <laughs> I feel like for as excited as I've been about tonight's show, that is the reason I've been a little off. Okay, It's the reason, just getting it out there in the ether, I feel better having talked about it. But the lack of McCoy on this roster has really kind of bummed me out for the last few days. Like, I feel like there's just been this, like, dark cloud. <laughs> Thinking about an offense that needed teeth let one of its most effective weapons go. Well, maybe with that happening, you will now see more use out of DeMarco because you've always stated that McCoy could not, it was so unpredictable in his running that he's not going to stick to the design play if he... If the design play is to you know run to the left, but he sees something to the right on our offensive line, he will go to the right if he wants to. It's, it's unpredictable. This is entirely possible, and I will admit that. After talking about it here with you, Chris, I genuinely feel better, which isn't that why we do this? Yeah. So with that said, even without LaShawn McCoy, when you take a look at the depth chart at running back now compared to what we had in 2018, it, we're miles ahead in terms of talent, in terms of upside. And I think that a lot of their fortunes are tied into the group of people up in front of them, you know, the big uglies, which is the next part of this assessment. The offensive line group, bigger and hopefully better. Well, the Bills were able to... First of all, let's talk about this. You got a draft pick back for Russ Bodine and for Wyatt Teller. Even given... Okay, the fact that you were... It's just, you got a draft pick for Russ Bodine. I don't know what kind of witchcraft Brandon Bean is practicing over there in his office. He's rolling them bones, you know what I mean? He's playing, <laughs> is this voodoo? What is it, Chris? I don't, it's, it's weird that you're getting a pick for Bodine and Teller, but you couldn't get a pick for Shady McCoy. The, well, the salary, I'm sure, had a lot to do with it, but it underscores how dramatic the remake of our offensive line was this season that you got rid of two guys who were starters for multiple games. Multiple, multiple, multiple games for you last year. And you let them both go. First of all, the sheer number of offensive linemen kept sticks out to me. Going into week one, the team has 10, which is noteworthy because most teams have just one primary backup at each of the offensive center, offensive guard, and offensive tackle positions. During Bean's press conference, he claimed that that number was just based on what he called, quote-unquote, guys who earned it. Okay? That speaks volumes to what he thinks about this group. And then there's the, just the ridiculous versatility of it. From Long and Feliciano to Ford and Secchi, Bates, there are five players on the offensive line that have some level of experience playing more than one position and in some cases are also versatile in terms of which side of the formation they can operate on. I, I think it was Joe, uh, what was it, Joe Marino? 
who brought up the hilarious Joe Thomas quote, where he said, hey, Joe Thomas talking about, you know, veteran left tackle in the NFL brought, when asked how easy it is to switch from left tackle to right tackle, his quote was, if you wipe your ass with your right hand, try it with your left sometime. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what you're talking about. So knowing that we have multiple players who can not only play different positions, but can switch sides of the formation, I mean, Chris, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's, that's an offensive coordinator's wet dream, isn't it? Yeah, we got 10 offensive linemen. How many of those 10 are versatile, can play inside, can play outside? Well, and that's it. There, there's a whole slew of them. And then you look at the fact that the overall quality of the various position groups, guard, tackle, and you start to I mean, the Jordan, names like Jordan Mills. This guy can't find work in the NFL, but he was starting for us last season. How sad is it that he's, he couldn't make Miami yes, roster? Exactly. Miami. He said, hey, whoa, 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 Jordan Mills, you're too good for us. We are ass, but we're still too good for you. <laughs> Come on. Every player pegged as a starter or primary backup has better pass protection grades than the person that they replaced last season. It, it's, there's no way around it. How they're, Chris, this is an incredible turn of fortune for the Buffalo Bills from last season to this season. I, I don't care. You can try to debate with me who needs to be effective where, question marks, if you don't feel good about this, then you either don't understand football or are actively rooting for the Bills to be terrible. That's it. There's, there's no in-between. Well, I would... The only thing This I would, team has the best offensive line out there going into this season, regardless of who they start as their starting five. In terms of depth, versatility, and overall talent that we've seen... Chris, I when's the last time you remember an offensive line more talented or deep? Is this one. Uh, uh, drafting Mike Williams. <laughs> Dude, you just spit, spit, you just spit beer <laughs> on my floor. You can't bring it. What, what are you thinking? Mike Williams. <laughs> no. My, um, my only point in, in with our offensive line and the amount of turnover that we had, also with Morris not playing at all during the preseason, is I'm, all I'm going to question is the chemistry. And how everybody works together. That's right? fair. That's my only concern. That's but talent-wise, we're better than last year. Do we have the chemistry? That, had, that's it. If I had to try to take a stab at how they'll be for, how they'll be trotted out in the rotation come Sunday, I'm looking at this from left to right. Chris Dawkins, Spain, Morse, Ford, and Inseki. The reason why you look at Dawkins. He struggled when he didn't have an experienced pass protector next to him. He'll have that with Spain on his wing. You let Ford stay in a position of comfortability from the preseason. I mean, obviously, when they put him out there at right tackle, we saw that Carolina game. It did not go well. So with that said, they moved him inside, and he performed as you would expect a high-end interior dra draft pick at the interior line position. He performed... I think the way you would expect a rookie too, but he showed a lot of upside in the run game. He didn't look like a liability in pass coverage. The pocket didn't move a ton on his side. So that's, you have that going for you. And then what that does is putting Inseki and Dawkins out there gives you your best offensive tackle pair together on the field at the same time. I mean, I think, I don't think there's an argument to be made that 
and Secchi and Dawkins are the two best tackles on the roster, correct? 100%. Okay. So with that, do you have any concerns about any of this, Chris? Just like I said before, the, the, the chemistry with the offensive line and keeping 10 players on offensive line and a lot of them That's being... That's ballsy. Yeah, and a lot of them being versatile to play inside and outside, then I expect you to play the absolute best five every week. Oh, absolutely, because you have those options. You've given yourself those options, and I think that our our front office deserves a little bit of a pat on the back for that because we're worlds ahead of where we were in the past. Mike Williams. I'm all sticky over here now. Jesus Christ, you can't do that to me. It looks like you pissed your pants. Now, when we're talking about pass catchers, because that's the other piece to this. I mean, Josh Allen, he, he did what he could in his rookie year, right? But you had to look at the talent that was around him. And it's a thing that Bills fans have been, I guess, when it comes to social media arguing against other fan bases, for those of you who choose to enter into that kind of stuff, the big thing has been look at the talent around Josh Allen. He didn't really have anybody who could catch the ball. He didn't have anybody in the backfield. Well, they took care of that piece, and they also added playmakers in the in the pass-catching department. When you look at the options that were rolling out there this year, the tight end group, Chris, Headlined by the fact that Tyler Croft was assigned a regular spot on the 53 instead of ending up on the pup list or the IR. That means he's going to be back soon. And being admitted that he would need, once he was back to full speed, some time to acclimate to life with the first stringers. But they expect him to be out there sooner rather than later. Otherwise, they would have just thrown him on a designation list and used that roster spot somewhere else. Take that and add in the fact that Dawson Knox is returning to health and the fact that Sweeney, I mean, first of all, best mustache on the team, hands down. I mean, that dude is straight out of some kind of 1976 adult film. And he made, he had like a, the type of film where the star had his own personal mustache, like assistant. It's combed out. It's fluffy. It's, oh, it's a thing of beauty. I don't care if he can catch the ball or not. Mustache like that commands authority. <laughs> it also helps that he's not that bad. It doesn't look like he's that bad at football. So, yes, they're a little light on starting experience, but Chris, again, if we're putting this through the lens of look at 2018, can you say, even with your limited understanding of X and O's, that this group is better than the one headed up by Chuck Clay last year? I'd say we're miles better than last year at tight end. I mean, I know we've had injury this this off season, but I think it kind of goes to a little bit of the of our scouting because down Dawson Knox, down Jason Kroom in preseason, Tommy Sweeney, seventh round pick, balls out in in these preseason games. So when he gets an opportunity, he takes it and he's running with it. Oh, it's- I, I would probably if 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 I'm gonna put a starting tight end out there for uh, Sunday, I would probably want Tommy Sweeney starting. Well, yeah, based on health and everything else that's going on, we may have no choice, but at least you've gotten to see him get some chemistry with Josh Allen. And then in terms of the wide receiver group, during we keep going back to this because it's the one thing that I, I it's the thing I keep looking at when I was putting together tonight's show and just thinking about my organizing my thoughts. During Joe Marino's pre-camp appearance on the show, we agreed that the top five on the depth chart were pretty much already penciled in heading into training camp in terms of a wide receiver. And that everybody else on the roster, you're probably all jockeying for just one spot. The team agreed, because they only kept six. 
when you look at the wide receiver group in terms of athletic profile, they're smaller in size than we've had in previous seasons. I mean, last year we went into this into into the year week one, Chris, with Kelvin Benjamin and Andre Holmes. We finished the season without either one of them even on the roster. In fact, I don't even think they made it past like week ten. Seems about right. When did, no, we cut Kelvin Benjamin before the last Jets game, which is why Robert Foster got to play. So that speaks to the fact that maybe they learned something through that process. That simple size, just trying to get, hey, we just need big guys who are big arm quarterback and go huck it up to. That didn't work. So instead they said, okay, let's reverse course. Let's go get some guys who just, because of their speed and route running, create separation. Let's see if that works. And you're seeing it play out because each one of them has a combination of speed and route running to their game. And it's, they're going to be versatile in how you can be aligned and how you can be used. I mean, you're, yes, you're not. all of these guys are susceptible to being jammed at the line of scrimmage. I'll give them that. Robert Foster is, I think, tied with Zay Jones as the only two wide receivers who are over six foot tall. But with And Robert Foster, for being six foot two, doesn't play as physically as you'd like a guy who's six foot two to play. But obviously he's got speed. So that's the one component of his game that they have to bring along is his physicality. But despite their ability to be kind of roughed up at the line of scrimmage, you've got guys like Cole Beasley. He's got that veteran savvy in terms of those underneath routes that he runs. You can't press him on every play because if he gets past you, he's open. Those linebackers aren't going to catch him in front of him, you know what I mean, if he crosses their face. You're talking about John Brown on the outside who's year over year over year shown that he can get open downfield. Now teams may counteract that with safety coverage, but he's at least got speed to burn. There's tools to work with here. You know, again, we talked about it last week. There is no high-end talent in this pass-catching group, whether it's tight end or wide receiver. But there are varied skill sets here. So, Chris, <laughs> it's... It's, I think it speaks to the depth of talent that they had, that one of the guys who flashed the most during the preseason in Duke Williams somehow got cut. I mean, Chris, we both had to drink a Seagram's tonight because the horses we backed on the wide receiver depth chart both came up bust. Yeah, you were. I was on Duke because he doesn't offer what our wide receiver room offers. And you were on Ray Ray because of the game experience and – Already a draft pick of of Bean, so that you're it's harder to let go of your own draft capital. Well, I mean, here it is straight from the horse's mouth. This is Brandon Bean talking about what helped McKenzie make the final fifty three over Ray Ray McLeod, fan favorite Duke Williams, and pretty much everybody else on the training camp roster. Isaiah, you know, he came in last year and, and brought some juice to our offense, some explosive plays. Whether it was the you know the jet sweeps and um, you know he. He's a vertical threat, but also an underneath threat, and thought he he showed that he he could run this offense and fit, you know, in that in that mold. Again, he made some plays. This you know, preseason's hard because you know, these guys are mixed in with quarter, different quarterbacks and um, different groups. But I thought, you know, in his opportunities, he did a nice job of showing, you know, he had that explosive element and could be. You know, you're always looking for those mismatches, you know, and as you put together a wide receiver that's probably the group that is can be vastly different from size to speed um, who can play multiple spots you know all those things go into 
how many receivers and which receivers you keep because you also got to think of how many you're going to be able to get to game day and what all roles are they going to do, only as a, not only as a receiver, but are they going to help on special teams you know, as well. Brandon Bean, preseason-ending press conference, buffalobills.com. I mean, you heard it straight from the horse's mouth. It's all about versatility. So even though this wide receiver group that we roll into 2019 with does not have a bona fide star, there's versatility across the board. And that's clearly something they prioritize over anything else, whether it was physical size, whether it was experience. And I'm okay with that. (laughs) I'm okay with that. So in terms of overarching thoughts, taking all of these things into account, There's a few things that I'm seeing laying out in front of us as we head into the 2019 season. First of all, we are going to see some significant versatility from the Bills on defense. At one point during his press conference, Brandon Bean was asked, Brandon, do you have any concern over the fact that you only kept three cornerbacks that you would call quote-unquote boundary corners? And his response was interesting. No, only because we got some guys that are playing other spots. You know, I think... Saran's playing that nickel, but Saran could get out there, you know, and play. I think he's he's versatile enough. And, you know, Taron, you know, he is our starting nickel, but I think we have some guys at safety that could come down and play nickel if we needed to. And I think Taron could at least survive out there and, and get us out of the game. Brandon Bean, last press conference, probably till the end of the season, over on buffalopills.com. So when you think about it, McDermott is a defensive backs coach by trade, and coaching up safeties has sort of been a staple of his career thus far in the NFL. So with that, when you take into account this, his love for the big nickel package and cover three packages that involve a safety, you can understand why he would want more of those players at his disposal, Chris. Then I think about the fact that our secondary was top shelf last season. And now adds the versatility of all these safeties into the play calling. Think back to the Chargers game, Chris. Our defense couldn't stop a nosebleed. Okay? To quote the Bart Scott. Chargers Chargers game last season or the year before? Chargers game last season where they were just dinking and dunking the ball in front of us. And nobody could tackle. Okay. And the only thing that changed was in the second half, Sean McDermott took play calling duties away from Leslie Frazier went to the big nickel package said look we don't need a we don't need a slot corner put another safety out there in the field and it stopped the bleeding on defense it's the only reason that the game didn't look worse on the scoreboard it seems like they're applying the same concept to what they're doing on the offensive line where everybody can play everywhere where in the secondary you have safeties that also can come down and play corner if need to absolutely think about what the chargers since we're already talking about them think about what they did to the ravens in the postseason Everyone was raving about Lamar Jackson, his running ability, and, oh, he throws to the tight ends, and he does all these things really well, and they're, they're at home, and it's going to be great. And the Chargers went out there and just flooded this field with safeties. They said, okay, you want to run this wonky offense that nobody knows how to counteract? We're going to put a ton of speed on the field and pass coverage ability. We're going to make this kid try to throw into it. The windows are going to get smaller. But they're also athletic enough, and they tackle well enough. They're not small cornerbacks. You can't push them around. These guys are all 200 pounds, and they bring the wood. So when I, th- when I look at that, and I think of this, and then I think of the fact that the Bills are not only stocked at safety, 
but they're stacked at safeties with various skill sets. They're just incredibly versatile. I think what you're going to see is probably the most exotic defense the Bills have deployed in years. They have real flexibility in terms of what they want to roll out there on not just a game-to-game basis, but on a drive-by-drive, play-by-play basis. They can they can scheme up different coverage schemes. You know, one of my favorite things about the cover three, which we didn't get to see a lot of because we didn't have that high-impact, take-the-ball-away type safety, Chris. I mean, when you think about the cover three, I think about a safety playing robber inside the box. And for those of you who don't understand the X's and O's of football, robber is when you have a safety that plays inside the box, but everyone else on the outside is playing their own zones, and this guy just sits in the middle of the field and waits for the quarterback to try to make a decision and then breaks on the ball. That is something that we still haven't seen out of the Bills' iteration of the McDermott defense, but I've watched him do it in the past, effectively. With this group of safeties, we're going to see a lot of different stuff from this defense, and I think that it's also going to make them harder to run against. So, Chris, that, that that's the missing piece. Last year, the Buffalo Bills were one of the best pass defenses in football, but we still had games where we got destroyed because teams ran the ball all over us, whether it was yards after the catch or whether it was just straightforward rushing. All of these extra safeties at least give us the opportunity to be better in that facet than we were last year. And then on the offensive side of the ball, I think from in the, almost the same way, the Bills are going to be better from a schematic standpoint than they were in 2018. You don't have size at the wide receiver group, and you don't have a bell cow running back or a star tight end. There's no Travis Kelsey coming in to save the day. We don't have a Julio Jones who you can just throw it up to on third down and trust he's going to catch it. And you don't have a Todd Gurley who's going to carry the load for you for four quarters. We don't have that. What we have, though, is a wide-ranging array of skill sets. And I think that now all of the pressure falls back on Brian Dable to try to use him properly. We can go back to when we hired him because you outlined the quarterbacks he's had at the NFL level, which I believe was Brady Quinn (laughs) twice. Brady Quinn twice. On two different teams, he got Brady Quinn. Yes. So this is, he, I think Dable is gonna is is gonna can put out with Josh Allen here. Well, and like I said last week, there's no excuses if he doesn't. The offensive line has been bolstered enough. It's now on the offensive coordinator to try to make up for the lack of top end talent with scheming. You have to see. I mean, the Patriots do it all the time, right? Yeah, And I'm not saying that we need to be the Patriots. I know that sounds ridiculous. But this is it. This is, this is make or break for Brian Dable, and it's going to put the pressure on him to make these various skill sets work because now there's no excuse of not having some sort of talent to work with. Yeah, and it's going to suck for us because out on that board in my family room. <laughs> Paul Wineski from Hashtag Sports doubled down that Daybold is getting fired this during the season for Seagram. So you and I, we need him to put his best foot forward so we don't have to drink Seagram. That's it. You have a bunch of dynamic pieces. Now it's how they scheme them up and how they use them. And only time's going to tell whether Daybold is up to that task. But that's one thing, Chris... <laughs> that's a luxury that this staff has run out of. Time. 
because it's time to kick off the 2019 NFL season. Chris, I am ex- I- I'm ecstatic to finally launch into the week one preview. Buffalo Bills versus the New York Jets, the start of the 2019 season. The time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard, the place, Meadowlands Stadium in New Jersey. The referee crew is Clay Martin, which I I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that we've never heard of this guy. You will after Sunday. (laughs) You'll have. Oh, guys, here's the thing I love about week one. It's the ultimate dice roll. I mean, you look at college football. Look at some of the upsets that took place this past weekend. Some of the dominant teams that struggled out of the gate, like Alabama against Duke. Well, to admit it, was a little scared out of the gate because it was 0-0 at the end of the first quarter. <laughs> but guess what this is, Chris? It's the ultimate dice roll. Every team and every fan base is coming into the season with a 0-0 record. Everybody's tied for first place in the division. Everybody is full of optimism. And yet for every game that could end up being just a romp to victory, and you drink and you cheer with your friends, you... It could also end up in the place where we did when we started the season in 2012. Some of you might remember that game. Well, if you're like me, you successfully drank a whole bunch of it out of your memory. It was 2012 and the Bills were fresh off of a disappointing finish to the season that saw them start 5-2 and two with what were perceived to be upgrades to the roster, including contract extensions for your quarterback, Uh, Just a bunch of extra playmakers that you rolled out there, or at least offensive linemen that you swapped in and out. And you look to build off that collapse into an actual playoff push. Instead, that scenario degenerated into a nightmare. And it started in the Meadowlands, where the Jets outscored the Bills by 20 points in the first half, forced three Ryan Fitzpatrick interceptions, and blew us out 48-28. And no, that Jets team wasn't good either. They finished 6-10. and ten. Chris, do you remember that game? I don't want to. <laughs> I was at a beer blast for my softball team, so it was open bar. No, I don't remember much after the fourth quarter. That game, people were like, oh, no, C.J. Spiller had a hell of a game. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> and so it's, it's one of those things, Chris. We're, I don't know why, but I'm reminded of that game. It, I'm just reminded of it as we launch into this season against the New York Jets. Now, we usually start every game preview with a rundown of the injury situation. But there hasn't been an official injury report filed for the Bills as of today, or at all for the regular season. Now, in an article by the Buffalo News that came out yesterday, Tyler Croft, the tight end, he was the only member of the Bills' final 53-man roster that isn't practicing in full with the rest of the team. So I think a few things here that underscores the narrative that Croft's going to be back soon. I mean, Sean McDermott, when he was asked when they expected to see him, he used the quote, the first few games. That's a good thing for this roster. He's probably eyeing Cincinnati. (laughs) Probably eyeing Cincinnati for a return. And then that's also good news for our playmakers. I mean, Frank Gore, Trey White, the last time we saw them in game action, they were rolling around on the ground, (laughs) grabbing their knees, groins. Thighs. I'm happy to hear that they're full go. And on the offensive line, Quentin Spain, he's back to full go. Mitch Morse is out of the concussion protocol and apparently ready to roll. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle his involvement with the offense. Now, you haven't played contact football in a month. Now, some teams sat their starters out all preseason. 
I don't know where the value is in that. We're going to see it play out. But either way, the Bills team is as healthy as it's probably going to be all season. So that's a positive thing. But what are the Jets, Chris? Last we heard, the Jets had all sorts of issues with availability, injury, terrible new uniforms, just a general malaise amongst the fan base that I think can be attributed just to having to live around New Jersey. <laughs> Things aren't good. But rather than speculate, I'd like to get it straight from the horse's mouth. And so with that, we'd like to welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Joe Caparoso. Joe, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. I'm excited that week one is finally here. It just feels like this offseason uh, has went on forever, which I guess is a common thing for both of our fan bases constantly uh, getting riled up about the offseason and then just waiting for these games to actually count. I think, you know what I think the problem is? I think when your teams get used to just like, I don't know, they, they build you up and then let you down, you do get used to it. I always ask myself, do the Patriots fans feel this kind of like anxiety and just for the season to start, it's like they know their team is going to be good. So rather than try to run to it, they just walk casually <laughs> towards the start of the yeah. NFL season. Their biggest concern is who they're playing at home the individual round. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's crazy. For those of you aren't familiar with Joe, didn't hear his last spot here, he is the owner of TurnOnTheJets.com. He has a really fantastic thing over there right now. He's done a 10-part preseason series just kind of covering all the aspects of the Jets. And I actually, you know, Joe, I listened to a lot of it before we had you on tonight. And I'm really interested to get your takes on just how things are going to break down this Sunday and get a feel for what we're going to see. So that starts with injuries and suspensions. I mean, availability is the biggest thing. And when I look at the Jets, I mean, you've got your second inside linebacker, Avery Williamson. He's on IR. Your starting tight end, Chris Herndon, he's suspended. Your second wide receiver has a calf injury. I mean, maybe arguably your number one wide receiver in Robbie Anderson. Your starting corner, I, I got to keep going. I got to take a deep breath. Your starting cornerback, Tremaine Johnson, is, I guess, going to try to come back from his hamstring injury. Hasn't played all preseason. Right guard, Coleccio Semele, hasn't played since the first preseason game with a pec injury. Left guard, Brian Winters, has a shoulder injury. Hasn't played in the same time frame. And offensive center Ryan Khalil hasn't seen a single snap in the preseason. Coming off the couch, no game experience with Sam Darnold. How healthy are the Jets? And is there any level of concern amongst the fan base at this point? Well, I think the offensive line injuries are even cautious with those guys the past few weeks. I think if they had a regular season game during the fourth preseason game, those guys would have played. Uh, and yes, it's concerning that that five-man unit has not played any snaps together in the preseason, but I think they're going to be good from a health standpoint, and the, the feeling is that Robbie Anderson should be good as well. Tremaine Johnson may be a little bit more of a question mark, just because we haven't seen him all summer, and he was banged up and not very good last year to begin with. No Herndon, as we know, uh, which is a big blow to the Jets' offense, and no Avery Williamson with him out for the year. Uh, I mean, I think the game time ones that everyone will be keeping an eye on are Johnson and Anderson. I expect both to play and Anderson to pretty much be himself. With Johnson, I think it's a little more of a coin flip. But, uh, you know, teams are teams get banged up. It, it's part of it. You have to be able to sustain injuries and move on. I think Sam Darnold will be there. Jamal Adams will be there. C.J. Mosley will be there. Le'Veon Bell will be there. Um, and, you know, the Jets are three-point favorites at home. doesn't surprise me. It basically tells you that Vegas thinks he's teams are even, which I think is a fair assessment. I think this is 
you know, basically a coin flip game. I know the Bills, you know, dealt with some injuries this preseason as well. And similar to the Jets, have certain positional groups they feel really good about, and then have certain positional <laughs> groups that uh, they're very concerned about. But it seems like we talked about a few weeks ago, the kind of general consensus is that these two teams are both going to be between 7-9 and nine and 9-7, nine and seven, and whoever wins this first game is going to have a really nice early leg up on getting second place in the AFC East. No, oh, absolutely. No, this game is big. If you're, talking about, if you're talking about where we both aspire to be at the end of the season in terms of the division, in terms of the conference, this game is important right out of the chute. And I'm sure you guys are pretty pumped not to be facing LaShawn McCoy while you do it. So <laughs> when we talk about the defense, that's where I want to start this conversation. The Jets secondary, would you say that that's a strength or a vulnerability of the team at this point? I mean, Tremaine Johnson's obviously your number one. He's a little banged up, but, but given the paycheck and the pedigree, you'd think he's your your most dynamic presence in that cornerback group, but he struggled last year too. So given that, what do you expect out of that group? I mean, cornerback's a major vulnerability. I would say on paper they have arguably the worst cornerback group in the NFL just because Tremaine Johnson was not good last year. Darrell Roberts has been a career backup. Brian Poole is like, okay, he's like a middle-of-the-road nickel corner, and then their depth is a guy they acquired five days ago, and another journeyman guy in Arthur Mullen who's really never played a ton of meaningful reps. So the cornerback depth chart is scary. Uh, the one saving grace is having like, an all-pro safety in Jamal Adams, and the hope is that Marcus May will be himself next to him and may play the third preseason game and by all reports is healthy. So that's a good safety duo. Um, you know, Adam's obviously great. And how much can they cover up what's going to be a liability of corner? And I mean, candidly, I'm very concerned about corner, but more concerned when they're playing Cleveland, New England, and Philadelphia than I am uh, with Buffalo's passing <laughs> offense. I actually think from a matchup perspective, the type of offense that Buffalo is likely to have, you know, a little more run heavy, a little more smashman, I think probably is a better matchup for the Jets with how they're built. The teams I think they're really going to struggle with are the teams that spread them out and throw 40, 50 times and have a top, top tier number one receiver who they just don't have someone to match up with. Well, when we talk about matchups, when I, th I think of our offense and the way your cornerback group fleshes out, I think you just touched on it a little bit. Our wide receiver core isn't, isn't the biggest or most physical in the NFL, but they've got some speed at the position on both the second level the out and the outside. And you can see that they have guys like your Cole Beasley's and your Isaiah McKenzie's who can work those underneath routes with precision and with some speed and run after the catch ability. In terms of matching up against that, I mean, I know Greg Williams, his, his thing has always been play man and blitz a lot. But given your assessment of the overall talent of the roster, how do you think those quick twitch kind of guys match up against your man defense in those kind of sets? It's a fair question, and I think, look, Greg Williams is who he is at this stage of his career, for better or worse. I don't expect him to radically change the way he calls the defense, though. I think the Jets are going to bet that they're going to put a lot of pressure on Josh Allen and make him make, try to make him make quick throws into tighter windows uh, underneath and see if he doesn't sail a couple that could lead to turnovers. I think the Jets' defense is going to allow a lot of yards, but... The hope is that they're going to be able to force a lot of big plays as well, sacks and force turnovers. So, you know, it's, is it okay if Allen, you know, racks up a decent amount of passing and rushing yards but throws them a couple or loses a fumble like he did the last time they met? I mean, if you remember the last meeting, it's a different defense. Now, 
you know, Allen, you know, ripped them up on the ground and had, you know, a couple decent connections down the field, but had three turnovers. And that ultimately really ended up being the difference in that game. And I think the Jets are going to kind of hope for a similar script where, look, Josh Allen's a great athlete. He's going to break off some big runs. He's going to make some big plays. But is he going to throw them a couple that the Jets can convert to points? And does that cancel out, you know, the 28-yard scramble he has on third down or a big connection he gets with John Brown down the sideline? I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of points in this game, more points than probably most expect. I haven't seen the exact over-under yet, but this feels like both teams in the mid to high 20s to me. See, and that's, and that's, I guess, what makes this interesting because you just hit it on the head. We all know what Greg Williams is. He's going to come out and be aggressive. That's his nature, and it's going to be his game plan. I don't even need you, you know what I mean? Like, we don't have to see the playbook. We know what's coming. These exotic pressure packages that are kind of his calling card, that's what's kept him finding work regardless of how many coaching staffs and regime changes he's a part of. So with that, one of the things I look at is, you know, obviously in the preseason, you can't take a whole lot away from that. But you can when it comes to – when you look at the vanilla play calling that you almost have to run in the preseason. I look at the Jets and I see a defensive line that only manufactured – well, a defense that only manufactured 10 sacks without blitzing a whole lot or a whole lot of disguising, you know, where their pressure's coming from. So when I think about it, I think about the matchup between your defensive line and our offensive line. Because if this is true and your cornerbacks are going to have to thrive based on pressure on the quarterback – I'm wondering what we're going to see out of the Jets' defensive line. Now, I know Greg Williams' traditional scheme doesn't exactly mesh with what you guys are at this point or the talent that you have on hand now. It may in the future. Are you guys primarily still a 3-4 defense? And if so, how does that defensive line stack up in terms of disruption based on what you saw in the preseason? Well, I think how the Jets structured their final 53-man roster has been a little bit of a giveaway that they're actually going to be more of a 4-3 than a 3-4 team, regardless of what they said publicly. And I think the Avery Williams jury helped push that along, but they kept nine defensive linemen on their 53 Wow. Uh, to only eight total linebackers and five cornerbacks and five receivers, which are kind of, just kind of ridiculous. Uh, I hope is rectified at some point, but nine <laughs> defensive linemen. Um, and I think that kind of gives it away. It, it does make sense. Greg Williams has been a 4-3 coach his whole life. He's have more talent on his defensive line than they have at linebacker. They have C.J. Mosley and, you know, a bunch of guys, really. I mean, mm-hmm. George Jenkins is probably a notch above that, but he's not going to be an all-pro or a pro bowler anytime soon. And the rest of that unit is a fifth-round rookie in Blake Cashman, you know, a long-time special teamer in Neville Hewitt, you know, a second-year rotational player in Frankie Louvre and Terrell Deshaun. There's no one really jumping off the page there. You know, on the defensive line, you're going Henry Anderson, seven sacks last year, Leonard Williams, uh, you know, former six overall pick, Quentin Williams, third overall pick this year, Steve McClendon, a really good three-round nose tackle, uh, and then two draft picks from last year, Nathan Shepard and Foley's Bobby along with a few other guys that they're keeping around. So, so it sounds like your line is I, pretty I, deep there. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of depth and a good amount of versatility with what Quentin and Leonard Williams could do. and. Uh, that's where they have a concentration of talent on the defense. And that's why, look, I think this is not necessarily new. I think it's going to be hard to run the ball on the Jets, and they're big up the middle and up front, uh, but they have some questions at cornerback and edge rusher. They're going to have some speed issues at the second level. So, see, now, as Bills fans watching, you're talking about Quinn and Williams, who I know everything about because I watched the kid's whole career at Alabama. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an Alabama guy, and I watched that kid play, and when you drafted him, it made me cringe because it's just one every year I fall in love with these Alabama players 
And then they go to the Dolphins, the Patriots, the Jets, and now I have to root against them. But so in that way, when we watched our own first-round draft pick at defensive tackle, Ed Oliver, I mean, he, you saw some good things and you saw his weaknesses. You know, one of his weaknesses was taking on double teams versus the run because of his lack of size. In that way, what are some of the flaws you might see coming into this season in terms of Quinn and Williams' ability and you know Leonard Williams' ability and just things that the, the Bills' offensive line might be able to capitalize on? Because as you said, they are deep and they are a talented group. What are some places where they might struggle on Sunday? I mean, look, Quinn Williams is still very young. I mean, he had some nice moments in the preseason, but he also had some stretches where he disappeared. And Leonard Williams is kind of the same thing, you know. My complaint against him is that he's someone who just disappears for weeks at a time without making an impact play. He's had a really tough time finishing off sacks and finishing off plays. I think he gets pressure at a decent clip, but doesn't convert enough. And, uh, took some bad angles, did a poor job containing Josh Allen running the ball the last time they met. And I think that's another potential problem for Quentin Williams. You're going to have a rookie over-anxious in his first game. He's going to overrun some plays. Um, he's going to get himself you know, in a legal hands in the face. He's going to overextend in some areas. And Quentin Williams also has to figure out, like, what is the rotation of playing time up front look like? You know, what percentage of snaps does Quentin Williams play compared to Henry Anderson, compared to uh, you know, Leonard Williams? How did that break up? And that was a problem for the Jets a few years ago when they had Richardson, Williams, and Wilkerson. And so, I mean, that's going to be something that's interesting to me, that matchup right there, the trenches. But so now to flip the you know, flip to the other side of the coin here, because ultimately I don't know what the, I, I can't lie to you and tell you that I know what the Bills offense is going to look like, because we saw a lot of different things in the preseason, a lot of spread concepts, but to your point, the Bills have traditionally been a run-first run offense. So I don't know what that's going to look like. One thing I do know what our team is going to look like is the defense. And that's a team that's pretty tough to play against. So in terms of what the Jets are bringing to the table offensively, a lot's been made, admittedly mostly by me, that the Jets' spending spree on skill positions this offseason left them kind of, I don't, I'm not going to call it in a lurch, but left them behind the eight ball in terms of top-end offensive line talent. There's something something of a work in progress heading into Sam Darnold's second year. So I guess I have to ask the question, now that you've seen them for an entire preseason, is the Jets' offensive line more talented than I'm giving them credit for? No, I mean, I think they have plenty to prove. I mean, see all sides of them play together at once. We haven't seen them. They had a start center until like two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. Um, if Ryan Khalil is close to the player he was for the majority of his time in Carolina, that's, that's a pretty solid center. It's certainly an upgrade over what they had last year. Uh, Coletio Semele, when he was out there in the preseason, looked really good. Looked like the guy he was in Oakland when he was one of the best guards in the league. Beyond that, you know, Brandon Shell, I would say, is a slightly below average starter. Brian Winters is a slightly below average starter. Calvin Beecham is, I don't know, he's okay, but he, I would say he's right on the cusp of average at best. If they get the best of all those guys, can it be right around the league average unit? Yeah, probably. Uh, but one injury or one guy playing below average, it's not the best. And I think that's part of why the Jets are going to play up-tempo, try to have Darnold get rid of the ball quick, move the pocket with him, use his athleticism. You're going to see the Jets come out three wide, one tight end, one back, and a lot of hurry up, and I think throw the ball a lot, candidly. See, now, that's interesting to me because you're talking about Ryan Khalil, but you're talking about hurry-up offense. Now, this is a guy who doesn't have a single snap of game experience with Sam Darnold. 
What's your level of concern that your starting center is a guy who effectively a month ago came off the couch and decided he wanted to be an NFL football player again and doesn't really have any rapport with your quarterback yet? I mean, it's a major area of concern. We're going to find out a lot about the Jets' offensive line in the first five games. The defensive line is very good. Cleveland's defensive line and defensive front is ridiculously good on paper, at least. Did you just say Cleveland's defensive line? I just want to make sure I heard that right, because I don't think I've heard anyone utter those words in the better part of a decade. Cleveland's defensive line is good? On paper. (laughs) On paper. On paper. paper. I thought their pass rush as a whole, looking at Miles Garrett, Olivier Vernon. Oh, yeah, no. It's just crazy hearing it out loud. And then, uh, you know, Philly and Dallas, right, in the first part of the year. And they're obviously loaded up front uh, as well. So it's going to be a problem. There's probably going to be some miscommunication. It's, you know, what team is going to make less mistakes, less turnovers, and less killer mistakes? Who's not going to have that red zone turnover? Um, Who and which of the young quarterbacks? This this might just come down to which young quarterback plays better. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think. It's, you know, who's not going to have the two turnovers? Who's not going to fumble away, you know, a ball in a big spot? And who's going to have a better than, quote-unquote, better than expected game? Both these guys have huge expectations going into year two. Who's going to be that clear-cut guy who challenges Baker as the second-best guy from this class and not the best guy? And most people are pointing these two, if not maybe Lamar Jackson. Um, so who's going to play better? I mean, last time it was all out in the first quarter, and then Darnold, I think, outplayed him in the second half of that game, and that's why the Jets won. Uh, if we get a repeat of that second half, I feel good about the Jets. If we get a repeat in the first quarter, then Buffalo's probably going to win. Well, see, and that's it. That's where this all starts and starts and ends for the Jets' offense on Sunday. Sam Darnold, year two. So, in watching him this preseason, I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, obviously, it's been widely debated. Who's better? Who did this better? There's a thousand metrics that you could look at out there to determine who was better than who last year. From what you've seen going into this year, I mean, I'm looking at a Sam Darnold who last year was number six in the NFL in what they call interceptable passes. He was number nine in what playerprofiler.com calls danger plays, which means that the quarterback's decision-making directly led to a negative outcome, whether it was a loss of yardage or a potential turnover. Throughout the course of this preseason, how does his decision-making look to have come around? I mean, in the preseason, it was really encouraging. I think he protected the football, made a lot more quick decisions, was a little more accurate when attacking down the field. And those were all concerns for him during his rookie year. I mean, the numbers you know, stand out in the preseason. They're only preseason numbers, so you can't get too excited about them. But I think it was more about some of the throws he made in the tight windows, how quick he was with his decision-making, his accuracy. So I think Jets fans are right to be optimistic going into this game. Now, it doesn't matter until he does it in a regular season game, but the expectations are that if this team is going to win more than you know seven games, it's going to be because he's really good. I think he's going to probably throw 30 to 35 times in this game. Um, and can he go out and play like he did against Houston Green Bay last year? And if he can, then I think the Jets should feel good about their chances to win this game. Now, how do you feel about this game? Final score prediction for you, Jose. I mean, as it stands right now, I'm leading, this is a coin flip game. I'm leading to like a 28-24 Jets, Jets win, and I'm saying that because they're the home team. This game was in Buffalo week one. I'd probably lead to Buffalo to win and cover that three-point spread, but I think the Jets will handle business at home in this game with a win that is decided late 
in the fourth quarter, somewhat similar to the last time these two teams played. And, it, you know, without being dramatic in September, it's kind of like a must-win for them because if you look at their next five games, as it stands now, they're going to be underdogs in all those games. They're going to be, you know, probably plus two or three at home against Cleveland. They're going to be plus six or seven in New England. They're going to be plus six or seven in Philly. Um, they're not going to be favorites even at home against Dallas, probably. They're not going to be home uh, favorites at home against New England. So you can't go into that gauntlet all in one. Got to win this game. Use that to help tread water. Get the early tiebreaker with Buffalo. And uh, look, I think Donald will outplay Allen enough to get them a 28-24 win. But this is going to be a close one. Would not be shocked if it went to Buffalo as well. Well, I'll tell you what, sir. I hope you're wrong. But thank you so much for joining us tonight, folks. Cheers to Joe Caparoso. Why don't you tell everybody who's listening where they can follow you on social media and where they can find your work? You uh, can follow me on Twitter at jcaparoso, C-A-P-O-R-O-S-O. You can check out the website at turnonthechip.com. You'll see all our articles and podcasts there. Again, you can find Joe Caparoso on Twitter at jcaparoso and go to find all of his work at turnonthejets.com. Dot com. Drew, he thinks he's he thinks the Jets are gonna squeak this out twenty eight twenty four. I mean, I understand the sense of optimism on his point. I mean, they have one of what used to be one of the best running backs in football, Le'Veon Bell. Yeah, a true three down workhorse. He's been off for almost two years. <laughs> a year have, and a half. They have skill position players who can get the job done sometimes. There's things there that might make you confident. But Chris I don't agree. I don't agree on some of those points. And I think it's time we talk about them as we launch into our first of the season. I'm pumped for this. Our keys to victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. <laughs> it starts here, Chris, with what I think sounds a little bit absurd when I say it. Force field goal attempts. I know. You, I just looked at your face when I said it. It sounds stupid, right? No. Well, my question: I knew that they sucked at at, at specialists. Did they? Who was kicking for them? Sucked doesn't do it justice, Chris. Their kicking game. I mean, we talked about it when we had Joe on our show of what three weeks ago to talk about the Jets heading into the preseason. We knew that their kicking game was in a bad spot, despite the fact that their special teams coordinator has a good track record of turning subpar kickers around or at least increasing their accuracy they were abysmal they, first of all Chandler Catanzaro retired on them because he realized he was so bad then they signed a kid and cut him within the span of two weeks and now they've recently signed just just what a 24 to 48 hours ago a kid named Kari Vedvik yeah the guy that missed a, couple, a field goal or two in the final preseason game heater that's what I was going to say. If anybody remembers that name, it's probably because it's the kid who missed a field goal here. The kid came from the Ravens. There was a land rush of people trying to trade for him who all had shitty kicking situations. And the Vikings gave up a fifth-round pick for him and then cut him because he just couldn't stop missing field goals. His only make of the preseason for the Vikings was from 27 yards. It's embarrassing. He is now the only kicker on the Jets roster today. And going into this game, Adam Gase was quoted as saying he's quote-unquote confident he'll come through for them. Chris, if he's the guy, then this is it. 
the, the you know the philosophy of bend but don't break defense? Yep. Okay? Make them try to kick a couple field goals. Because you know, like I know, when you play sports and you have the yips, nothing makes it worse than a couple misses. Yeah, you can even look uh, look back to la- last year. Uh, oddly enough, I think it was with Minnesota. Daniel Carlson from Auburn was drafted and missed like two field goals in the first week and then was cut. Yep. And if you're a rookie, I mean, this guy's got to make these field goals or else he'll probably be looking for work into week two. This is a kid who's been cut once before, who's been traded, and now he's been cut a second time. <laughs> he's been cut a second time. Two teams in one offseason didn't want him. And now he's on the Jets. And I think that he needs to be given every opportunity to disappoint Gang Green at home in front of what we all know is a loving and understanding home crowd. (laughs) The second key to victory, interior defensive line and linebackers versus the Jets, Jets offensive guards and center. Now, we just talked with Joe about the concern over Ryan Khalil not having any real experience here with this quarterback, with this offense, especially if they decide to go try to go up-tempo. For a guy who probably is still acclimating to the playbook, that's going to be a big ask. If there's a place that I can think right away that will dictate the way this game unfolds for both teams, it's right here, the center of the offense and defensive line. Ed Oliver was routinely doubled throughout the preseason by what I'd argue is Pro Bowl-level talent, except for the Lions game where they, Chris, they ran almost every play out of the shotgun. (laughs) They were not going to let anybody touch Matt Stafford. And he still showed pretty well. When you add in the athleticism of Edmonds and Milano, and consider that the interior offensive lines on the Jets' side of the ball don't really have any top-shelf talent, or haven't had a whole lot of time to gel this preseason. This is the place where we can completely blow up their plans on offense. Darnold's completion percentage under pressure last year was 29.2. 28th in the NFL, Chris. So while we watched Darnold, I mean, remember that play? We were there, and I was tripping balls because somebody slipped me a roofie in the parking lot. But I was sober enough to realize that that play was a the, the Sam Darnold 48-yard scramble for a 7-yard touchdown pass. Do you remember that? Uh, no, probably because I was babysitting you. <laughs> Maybe if you were an introvert like me, you wouldn't just join in conversation with people. And end up out, drinking out, a jar of something that you don't yeah. know what's in it. Yeah, I get, I get where you're going. Ultimately... That play was amazing, and it arguably was the play of the game for the Jets. It's what cemented their victory. But with that said, he was bad when you made him make make decisions under pressure. He made a ton of them. So with that said, if there's a place we're going to do it, it's right there. I mean, that's the, the, the weakness is right there in the center of their offensive line, and it plays right into the strength of our defense. I think that's our best opportunity to fluster Darnold and take advantage of his tendency to make poor decisions. And then you talk about the depth that we have in the secondary. They're just licking their chops, waiting for a chance at this kid. And on the flip side of the ball, because we're talking about Darnold struggling, hopefully, it's Josh Allen against the Jets' inside linebackers and safeties. For all of the things that I bash the Jets for, the middle of their defense against the pass isn't one of them. 
Last year, Jamal Adams, 13 pass breakups and one pick. This kid's an all-pro. I mean, people avoided him like the plague. Marcus May, three pass breakups, one interception. But at the same time, he's got potential. And then, C.J. Mosley. You don't become the highest paid inside linebacker in football for being terrible. He had six pass breakups, one interception, and 105 tackles. <laughs> All offseason, the idea has been that the offense was redesigned and restaffed in an effort to encourage Josh Allen. Chris, we know that this kid loves to play cowboy football. Every play has to be an Uncle Rico pass over those mountains, and if it's not, he's disappointed. They, they rebuilt the offensive skill positions to encourage him to use those underneath routes, to throw into the high percentage areas of the field. Even with as vulnerable as the Jets' cornerbacks might be, their defense projects to being pretty good against that short area passing game because those safeties come down on the passing game in a hurry. And C.J. Mosley's pretty good as an inside, you know, if they're playing a 4-3 scheme, he'll be their middle linebacker. So given that, it's on Josh to be sharp when he throws into those areas of the field. Now, if you can do this, Chris, it'll accomplish two things. One, Greg Williams. We talk about his exotic blitz packages and how he loves to bring extra help, not just from the linebacking core. He brings cornerbacks. He brings safeties. If you start completing passes in the flats and in the shallow areas, you know, we saw him work in the Carolina game. Him and Cole Beasley had, what, five connections? That sounds about right. I was I was gonna ask about that. With Mosley's pr- pretty good, and uh, May, uh, yeah, May, Marcus May, is it Marcus May? Marcus May and Jamal and Adams. Jamal Adams. They seem pretty good. Wouldn't you want to make sure you take the safeties out of the play and run like Brown and Foster deep, so you have coverage over the top and Look then run you. Cole Beasley underneath Look at you understanding football holy shit guys five years Chris is blowing my mind right now it's a celebration over here folks but with that said no you're not wrong what I'm looking at is this if you can start getting completions now you have three running backs who can all catch the ball out of the backfield you have I mean, even John Brown caught a, a crossing route in the last game, and that play looked like pitch and catch for him and Josh Allen. You've got Cole Beasley, who's here specifically to work those underneath routes. You start to win in that area of the field, and it does two things for you. Greg Williams is going to be less inclined to send extra bodies when it comes to that pass rush. You know, Joe just articulated that one of the things that they're hoping for is that the pass rush and the pressure is going to force Josh Allen to make bad decisions because their cornerback group isn't good enough to, to make up for it. Well, you start making some hay out of those short passes. You, Chris, that's how you get a guy to stop blitzing like that. That's going to do a lot for Josh Allen overall in the game. And given their man coverage scheme, it would soften them up on the outside. What you're going to do is you're going to suck more guys down towards the line of scrimmage and inside them in between the hash marks which is going to give our guys like Robert Foster and John Brown room to operate on the outside of the defense, knowing there's no safety help coming over the top. I think that this is paramount. I mean, one of the biggest keys, if we're going to win this game on offense, it's Allen showing that he's grown from last year to this year in terms of operating an NFL offense. Be willing to take what they give you. Don't stop looking for don't stop looking for the haymaker, but take the jab when it's available. I mean, Chris, 
if he can do that successfully, remember those just knockout punches of passes that Matt Barkley was dropping on them the last time we played him in the Meadowlands? If he goes out there and operates the short passing game well early on, it's going to open up those deep routes and those home run throws are going to be there. That's it. Mark my words. Because they don't have the cornerback depth to compete. So with that said, what is your prediction for the game? I honestly think we're going to blow the Jets out. <laughs> oh, shit! Chris putting his balls on the table. I am. I'm put, I honestly I believe... A blowout? It's a blowout. You're predicting a blowout from the Buffalo Bills. Yes. Okay. Yes, because I... I believe in Josh Allen. I believe in uh, Brian Dayball. I mean, not a lot has been talked about this, that Josh Allen has, of his draft class, the only one coming back to the same coaching staff. Everyone else has made changes, whether it's a head coach, offensive coordinator. And I think Josh Allen is going to make the leap, and I'm going to say it's going to be 34 to 14, Buffalo. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. All right. The ball's on this guy, folks. Wow. I believe, the way you believe in Josh Allen, I believe in my ability to drink my way through a nail-biter. A game that the Bills win by a field goal last second of the game, but we could, kind of the same way that it ended in dramatic fashion the last time we played him here at New Era Field. I think that our defense is better than theirs. I think our offensive line is better than theirs. I think that skill positionally, yes, they have the big name, Le'Veon Bell. But outside of that, what do they have that we don't? Robbie Anderson, Jameson Crowder. Who? Who? What? Those are their two receivers that they have. Paul Richardson? I I don't know. Chris Herndon? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) So with that said... I think that this game is tough because we're going on the road into hostile territory in a game where there's a lot of pressure right out of the gate. This isn't a game. This is a division game. game. It's a division game. Got to win these. And it's an important one because one team in our division has already just fucking flown the white flag. Now it's between the two of us to kind of see who can take that next step first. And I think that the Bills want to beat them to the punch. But you're going to do it in hostile territory, which makes the game a little bit harder than I think it normally would be. Win by a field goal. I'm going to call this one 27-24. Buffalo Bills take the win. Chris, we're going to be at Batavia Downs over the weekend. And anybody who wants to come watch me stress drink my way through this fiasco, make sure you come on out. Like I said, there's going to be games. There's going to be a ton of swag and giveaway. There's, Thurman will be there. Thurman's going to be there. They're giving away autograph memorabilia. Rock Sports Network's going to be there. They're going to be giving away swag. What else do... You to get, quote Marv Levy, where else would you rather be than right there, right then, drinking with me and Chris? Yeah, I, mean, I, <laughs> I can't stress this enough. If you guys have never watched Drew watch a football game, this oh. is the place to, to go and... and See this. Has I'm anybody ever seen you, the, the, scene you have in anger, to. the scene in anger management? Remember the guy listening to the basketball game during the therapy session? Nate, didn't we decide that you shouldn't listen to the ball game? Don't worry, Dr. B. It's just a regular season game, not that important. Uh-huh. See? Iverson just missed a layup at the buzzer. Sixers lose. 
Who gives a crap, huh? I mean, it's just a silly game anyways. Sharks are swimming in my head. You gotta dump that. Shit. You gotta dump that. Shit. Oh, hey, 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 oh. Listen to me. Stay with me. Nate. Now repeat after me. Who's from? That is exactly you, except football. Exactly you, except football. If you have not watched Drew Gear, watch football. Please come to Thirty Four Rush Batavia Downs Casino. It's gonna be a a hell of a time. And then also uh, Saturday, seven o'clock. We're going to uh, debut on YouTube Live. Uh, it's, this is a thing of beauty, folks. It's been weeks in the making. I can't wait for it. We're finally rolling out some live content on YouTube Live instead of Periscope. It's like I said during our press conference. Periscope, it's like a bad relationship. It just wasn't giving me what I needed at this point in my life. Folks, make sure you join us and make sure you co- oh, make sure you come back next week as we recap this podcast and then uh, win or the lose, Giants. win or lose, Chris, real football is back. Guys, we got to get the hell out of here, but thank you so much for sticking by us all preseason. I'm Drew Gear. that's Chris Krueger, and this has been the kickoff to the 2019 football season with the Rock Pile Report.